Hi everyone, and welcome back to Pro Bono Pod. This is the third episode in our series on behalf of the KCL Pro Bono Society, one of the largest student-run pro bono organizations in the UK. Our podcast aims to discuss and raise awareness about a range of issues from human rights to alleviating poverty with a panel of lawyers, academics, charities, NGOs, activists, and more. I'm Felix, treasurer for the KCL Pro Bono Society. Thank you for tuning in today. In our last episode, we were talking about the role of legal technology and how it impacts access to justice. Today, our focus shifts towards the role of Amicus in the fight against the death penalty. Amicus is a small charity that helps provide representation for those facing the death penalty in the US. They raise awareness about rights of US prisoners being infringed and work towards alleviation of capital punishment. In the context of a world pandemic, the charity sector has been deeply affected by numerous unprecedented challenges. The rights of prisoners have also been affected. As the pandemic hit, inmates were even further from their families and their loved ones impacted their own personal well-being and infringing their own prisoner rights. Pro bono aid has never been more important. In light of the Eighth Amendment of the US Constitution, one may argue the fact that the death penalty cannot be justified. With 17 executions in 2020, 10 executions so far in 2021, and 27 states still applying the death penalty, the debate around capital punishment is more important than ever. So why is capital punishment still being applied? What are the rights of US inmates to act against it? What does amicus do against capital punishment? How can you, as a student, get involved? We are so fortunate to welcome our guest to the studio. Anahita, the president for amicus chapter and the student ambassador here at King's and Anna Draper, training and casework coordinator at Amicus. First question is for you. Our students who listen to our episodes are so eager to hear from Career Pass. What brought you to this position at Amicus? I went into my law degree at the University of York with an interest in human rights and crime. I was interested in using the law to instigate change, which is where I first came across Amicus. Um, I went to a human rights day at Leeds University and Mark George QC and also trustee of Amicus and Garden Court Barrister was there speaking. He spoke about Amicus and I was sold within about five minutes. So I started as a student rep. I intended to take a gap year after my law degree but ended up doing a master's at UCL in legal and political theory. Um, And there I was also a student rep for Amicus so I carried Amicus with me throughout my um, legal education. Then after um, I finished my master's, I applied for the placement in the US with Amicus. I did my placement in Dallas in Texas, um, exactly where I wanted to go. I thought I'd go straight for where it's being used most. Why not? Straight in the deep end. I was out there from January to March last year. Um, And then while I was out there, I was lucky to get the office job at the um, UK Amicus office. So I came back in March, three weeks early from my placement, but I came back to the remote um, Amicus office in the UK and um, was employed as the administration officer. And I'm, as of the last month, I'm now the training and casework coordinator. So I do all of the sort of admin duties as well as um, heading up the training. Okay, very interesting. 
So let's jump in into um, what we're talking about today. And so as we've seen before, 27 states still maintain capital punishment uh, in the US, leaving 23 states who have completely abolished it. I think firstly, I want to pick up on the 27 states. So um, you're absolutely right that there's 27 states who still have the death penalty on their books. And of those, three of them have a moratorium, which essentially means under that specific governor and governors are in for four year periods. Um, under those governors in three of the states, they have said that they're not going to seek any more death penalty cases and they're not going to have any more executions. So while those governors are in place, there won't be any use of the death penalty. Um, obviously, that means as soon as there's a new governor, that can change. and The new governor can do something completely different and just continue with all of the executions that were originally scheduled. Um, interestingly, some governors will take steps to make this more difficult. So some of them have destroyed the execution chamber, for example, and it's cost so much and takes so much time to rebuild the chamber. And now there's fewer and fewer architects who are actually willing to do it. It means that in some ways that then leads to abolishing just because they're making it really difficult to go ahead with any executions. Um, so I just wanted to make that note first that um, 27 have it on the books, but 24 are actually using it. And of those, there's probably only about you know, probably less than half are executing people actively. Um, but obviously the numbers are still far too high. What are really the arguments to maintain capital punishment? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, the answer to this question is really rooted in America's history of racism and their strong belief in religion. It's not so much that there are strong arguments being put forward for death penalty, but its existence is really one of the ways that society uh, systemically oppresses certain individuals. And that's really those who are non-white, poor and vulnerable, whether that means psychologically or because of their circumstances, in some way vulnerable. When you look at the states that still have the death penalty, which is pretty much what we call the Bible Belt, so on the map of America, it's all the, the southern states, if you were to place a map of where death penalty cases are taking place, if you compared that to where the most lynchings of black people were taking place historically, um, those maps would look almost identical. And there's a brilliant picture of this on the Death Penalty Information Centre website. Really, the death penalty is um, a sort of state-sanctioned form of lynching in many ways. And it's supported still now because of principles like an eye for an eye, which are really ingrained in um, the very strong religious side that we see in America. When you look at how the death penalty is actually used, you can see that this is this sort of narrative of racism and very strong religion is still played out today. One study found that of the cases considered, 299 black defendants were given death for murdering white victims and only 21 white defendants were given death for killing black victims. And really, the longer you think about the disparity in those numbers, the more shocking that becomes. Separate to that, as I said, you then have the issue of religion. So I didn't believe that people would openly say to me when we interviewed them, whether it was jurors or witnesses or whoever it was, that they supported the death penalty on the basis of that's what the Bible says, an eye for an eye. And yet they do. So um, I interviewed a juror for three hours and within that three hour interview, he quoted the Bible several times, enthusiastically told me, in fact, that he would love to personally execute my client. He would love to flick the switch. So they're very open about an eye for an eye in these Bible Belt states. And, you know, punishment is really 
encouraged. Um, the reasons for it still existing are not so much that anyone is standing there on a soapbox putting reasons forward. They don't have to because it's really accepted as something that exists in society and exists because it's the just form of punishment. Thank you for clarifying. And I think it's really interesting to see that, yeah, the comparative between like what happened before and what's happening today, nothing has really changed, evolved. Yeah. So mm. at the KCL Pro Bono Society, we really have this human rights approach. And so I was wondering, are there any clear policies issues with regards to capital punishment? So obviously you touched on racism, but I was thinking about costs, arbitrariness. I'll start with the issue of arbitrariness. So in 1972, the Supreme Court said that the way that it was being applied was um, entirely arbitrary and therefore they stopped the death penalty. But... The reason they got rid of it wasn't that the practice itself was unconstitutional, but rather that the way it was being used was unconstitutional. And an interesting quote from the 1972 case was that the Supreme Court said the chances of getting death in any given case were comparable to the chances that a defendant might get struck by lightning. So that was how arbitrarily it was being applied. So um, unsurprisingly... This case was in 1972. Four years later, in 1976, 35 states thought that they could fix this and rewrote their laws um, and brought it back again. It still didn't fix the problem. Um, it's still the death penalty is still being applied arbitrarily even now. A black man is three times more likely to be found guilty and be given death than a white person is. And black people make up 44% of death row compared to only making up around 12 to 14% of the general population in the respective states. There are many things that contribute to this. One of the things is the death qualified jury. And it essentially means that the jury you have in a death penalty eligible case can neither be totally against death as a punishment, but also should not be entirely for it. It's obviously a very fine line. In addition to that, anyone who's had interactions with the police cannot be on a jury in a death penalty eligible case. And the combination of these two things essentially means that all white pro-death jurors are those who sit on the jury in these cases. And that's really one of the reasons that we see this sort of arbitrary application of the death penalty. Um, I've touched on race already, but there's racial bias within jury selection. When you do jury selection, the prosecution and defence have two kinds of strikes, strike for cause and peremptory strikes. And they don't have to give reasons for them. So proving essentially what the reasons were when they haven't had to give them is very, very difficult. So in one of my cases in Texas, the evidence we had showed that the prosecutor had put a B next to all of the black jurors. Um, and they were all subsequently st struck from the jury. So this is pretty good evidence, given what we usually have in these cases. But even though we had this, it was by far the weakest claim in this particular client's case. Instead, we were using this claim to essentially leverage the attorney general to grant one of the other stronger claims. So it assisted, but it was by no means the most effective claim that we had. In terms of cost, um, the idol that is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that those without the capital get the punishment. And that is true even from my experience. I was working on about seven cases in Texas last year and um, the office had 17 
In every single one of those cases, the defendant had had a public defender and the families weren't able to pay any legal costs. You you touched on costs for Mm -hmm. families. And do you think that one could argue that also the cost of putting someone on death row for so long Mm -hmm. is also a cost for the taxpayer for states? Do you think we, we could argue that as well? Yes, absolutely. So... A death penalty case is assumed to cost three times as much from start to finish in terms of the trial and the penalty phase. And that's because in death cases, you have these two separate phases. Um, You have the trial, so that's the guilt-innocence phase. And then you have the penalty phase. So you're essentially running two trials. And in death cases, you're going to have as much evidence in the penalty phase as you would do in the trial phase, simply because there is life at stake. So you're running this very, very long trial. There's a lot of evidence, a lot of document processing, which actually is a lot of what Amicus is doing. So the reason we can have um, often students or caseworkers who aren't necessarily in criminal law work on these cases in the UK is because a lot of it is document processing. There is you know, tens of thousands of pages of evidence in each one of these cases. The manpower that it takes to work on these cases is extortionate compared to what it would usually be in a non-death case. Um, And that just costs a lot more to do it properly, which is why we often see cases that are sped up or evidence not properly being disclosed. It's all rushing these things through to um, get that conviction and save time and money. I remember uh, in the headlines, um, a state was willing to use a lethal injection earlier than the expected execution date, just because that lethal injunction would perish. So thing is it with regards to the cost of what they're using. So could you maybe develop on that and, and uh, try and make us understand what the, what the costs are for the states as well that still apply it? In terms of the methods of execution, you're absolutely right that there are a million problems with the lethal injection, particularly because um, big pharmaceutical companies who were providing the resources for these executions, which was happening in companies in the UK, but also, you know, throughout Europe and the US as well. Those companies are no longer providing the execution drugs. So you're absolutely right. There were issues to do with expiry, but um, essentially the bigger issues with the uh, methods of execution is the fact that they aren't able to source the um, execution drugs, which is costing them money either to source them from you know, alternative sources or to think of new execution methods. Thank you so much for for clarifying this. It's really interesting to see as well to have like a perspective from the state and also families and inmates themselves. So talking about inmates, I think it's really interesting to maybe analyze deterrence, innocence, juveniles, mental illness. I think our listeners would be really interested in, in hearing about it. Yes, um, I could speak for a long time on each of these things, so I'll try and make it fairly brief. In terms of deterrence, there is study after study on the lack of deterrence achieved by any punitive measure taken, whether that's prison, death, anything. Famously, one of my favourite things is that when there were public hangings in the UK for theft, there were people pickpocketing from those in the audience. You know, a literal example of the fact that deterrence is really a myth. It does not work at all, particularly with punitive measures. In terms of innocence, there are now 186 exonerees in the modern era, so that's only post-1972. 
and of those 11 were added in the last year. So for every nine people on death row, it's estimated that there is one innocent person. Um, if there's ever a risk, no matter how small, that someone innocent is going to be executed, you know, not only have their liberty taken from them, but also their life, which is the first and foremost fundamental right, really that should be a strong enough reason to get rid of the death penalty. So these numbers are absolutely shocking. And regardless of what anyone feels about punishment, these numbers should give you reason enough to feel strongly against the death penalty. And then juveniles. So there's no longer the death penalty for juveniles in the US since the Roper case in 2005. However, all of those who were sentenced to death before that time then got put on ALWOP, which is life without parole instead. You know, compared to the UK where we have a whole life sentence, there are still exceptions to that and routes to appeal. But with ALWOP, you are in prison for the rest of your life. There is no possibility of parole. No one's going to listen to any complaint you have, essentially, about that. It's really just a very uh, disproportionate punishment. The Eighth Amendment is really core to the US Constitution. I state, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Amicus has recently picked up a few uh, juvenile outwop cases as well on the same principle that these punishments are disproportionate given the offender and the offence. So what are the methods of execution still applied in the US and maybe also what's what causes the most infringement to like prisoner rights? Actually, I like asking this in um, in front of an audience because um, people can't guess what all five methods of execution are. So there are five altogether. Um, lethal injection is the most widely used, but there are so many problems with sourcing the drugs that it's looking likely that some of the other methods are going to become more popular. So the other four are electrocution, gas chamber, hanging and firing squad. Um, And actually, some states were looking just recently in the last year at um, using firing squad as an alternative to um, lethal injection. Going back to Amicus on this point, actually, um, Amicus came about because of the last person that was executed using the electric chair in Louisiana. The electric chair was really popular before the lethal injection. And many states are now talking about bringing back electrocution as the next most popular method of execution. You said what is the greatest infringement on human rights. And in terms of the Eighth Amendment on cruel and unusual punishment, the electric chair is without a doubt cruel and unusual. It was a very common thing that defendants were taking sort of 10, 15 minutes to die with the electric chair. That method particularly, in terms of the length of time and the pain caused, is cruel and unusual punishment, undoubtedly. With that being said, the lethal injection is becoming more and more problematic. You might have seen in the news a couple of weeks ago, the execution of John Grant in Oklahoma, I believe, was a botched execution, particularly when states are using um, the drug midazolam or um, pentobarbitals are causing a lot of botched executions. I mean, it's traumatic to hear about, let alone to be in that situation. And it's traumatic not only to um, the defendant being executed, but also to those who are performing the executions. Unsurprisingly, almost no medical professionals are 
willing to do this job anymore. So they're getting prison staff or people who aren't professionally trained in anything medical to perform these executions. So essentially, the first problem is that they can't source the right drugs. And then the second major problem is that they're getting people to inject defendants who aren't experienced at all in anything medical. So thank you so much. Um, I had another question. Is there any particular case which sparked this debate around policy issues with regards to capital punishment? The case of Glossip and Gross is a really frustrating case on the lethal injection. And that concluded that the lethal injection was constitutional, but there were major issues with the use of midazolam, which is the drug that they use. In addition to saying that, they said that the onus was on the defendant to suggest a better alternative method of execution. Now, this sounds very strange. Sort of, yeah, we have issues around the use of this drug particularly. It doesn't sound that great. We think it's constitutional, but actually, if you have a better idea of how to execute people like yourself, please let us know. Um, I think there are a couple more things. So intellectual disability is very much linked to the case law. So since 2002, in the case of Atkins in Virginia, it's unconstitutional to execute anyone with intellectual disability. This being said, there are several defendants still on death row and who've been executed who had strong evidence of intellectual disability. One of these was the Lisa Montgomery case, which was a very big federal case. So she had very strong evidence of intellectual disability, along with a million other mental health problems, which is a separate issue. And she was still executed. One of our amicus clients was actually the second person to be executed on federal death row by Trump last year. And he also had very strong intellectual disability evidence. And again, the claim, um, I think, was even pending at the time that he was executed. So it didn't mean anything. There have been, I think, about 27 inmates who have been taken off death row on the basis of um, the Atkins case. though. So it is a powerful claim. Um, an interesting point on this is that in one of my cases in Texas, the expert testifying that our client was ID for the defence was actually the prosecution's expert in the original Atkins case in 2002. Obviously, they lost that case because that's the landmark case on intellectual disability. And that expert defected and is now an expert for the defence in Atkins cases. So... I find this absolutely wild. Um, I tell everyone at every opportunity because this is obviously a really, really strong witness to have if you're you know, representing the defendant because this person has changed their mind completely about the weight intellectual disability should be given in terms of um, getting someone off death row. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to illustrate those policy issues and really focus on a, on a, on a few cases. And so thank you very much for doing that. There are many, many cases. So I have one that sticks in my head um, as the most interesting case. The client had been on death row about 17, 18 years. This case brought up a really interesting uh, right to fair trial issue for me. So at the time of the offence, the client had clearly not been in his right mind. Um, he'd been suffering from uh, several mental health conditions that were causing hallucinations. So we were doing a claim of insanity. This claim had succeeded once already by the time I got there. So he had been taken off death row on the basis that his insanity claim had worked. But then they changed their mind and put him back on death row. So that there was that issue that... This was a claim that had succeeded and then has suddenly been revoked. So we were working on the second insanity claim 
And then there was a separate issue that when I spoke to this client, this client brought up that his legal team had argued insanity and he wasn't happy about that. You know, he still believed that what he was seeing at the time was real and he had to act on it, but he wasn't insane. So that for me brought up some really difficult issues around, you know, what really is the right to fair trial and what we as the legal team were doing, which was in his best interest, but also might not be in his sort of expressed interest, I suppose. His was also a case where the prosecutor had known that he could get a conviction out of the case. So uh, the prosecutor had had some sort of issue with him in a previous case and he hadn't achieved the outcome that everyone wanted him to get. And when he came across this client's case, he knew that this client was um, an Indigenous client, so wasn't able to to afford the legal costs. And um, they were right in that because they got a conviction and they got the death penalty the prosecution essentially saw this case as a way to redeem himself for his failings in the previous case. Um, so all of these cases are rife with prosecutorial misconduct and um, ineffective assistance is sort of a, a thread that goes through every single one of these cases. Thank you so much for touching upon those cases. We touched upon the fact that the pandemic has stopped legal representation, essentially, and pro bono aid and the fact that people couldn't visit prisons. Could you maybe... Try and finish off on clarifying us, well, what's the situation at the moment? Mm -hmm. Are prisoners able to get the pro bono aid they really require? Yes, it's been a really, really difficult year for everybody and particularly for um, all of those on death row in sort of two ways in terms of firstly their representation, but also their safety. They don't have the best sort of hygiene um, procedures in place at the best of times and especially not during COVID. So um, when I left Texas last March, um, roughly a week, I think, after I left, they stopped all visits to the prison. As far as I know, they haven't been able to get visits in person even still. Obviously, Trump had his execution spree um, last year and he that was taking place while people still couldn't get access to their legal representation. So Trump was executing people who essentially weren't getting proper legal representation at that point. A lot of it's still being done over the phone. Now, I can't speak the, the practice in any other state apart from Texas because that's where I was working um, and experienced this. But in Texas, generally, attorneys wouldn't use the phone to talk to the clients because they were aware that someone else was probably listening into it. Obviously, the prisoner has a right to seeing their um, the resources being used in their legal case, but they also have to keep them in the cell and the cell is regulated by the state. So there are occasions when the state will take resources out of the cell or they tap the phone lines. You essentially, anything that you write or email to a client is going to be checked by prison staff anyway. So you assume that someone's going to read that. So it's really, really difficult to have any sort of legally privileged uh, conversation with your client anyway, let alone the pandemic then preventing that. And actually, when you're in there in person, the legal visits are done in the same room as all of the other visits. So you're sitting less than a metre from someone who's potentially listening into your conversation. So it's far from privileged at the best of times. And with many prisoners still not being able to have those in-person visits, it's, it's a real problem. It's a real threat to you know, their right to fair trial and then to an adequate appeal afterwards. 
Thank you so much for, for clarifying this and thank you for taking some of your time to uncover all this for our listeners. So we now move on to Anahita and uh, your role as a student ambassador for Amicus. Firstly, what do you do as a student representative for Amicus? Right, so as a student rep, we are essentially the point of contact between student groups at universities and Amicus, the organization. We have the same aims, but just on a university level, we aim to raise funds, raise awareness of capital punishment in the U.S., as well as encourage students to undergo the biannual death penalty training and be able to take a work placement in the U.S. Thank you so much. You touched on fundraising. Are there any other ways students can get involved and really contribute to this cause? Right. So, yeah, there's a multitude of ways that students can get involved. Personally, me and Claire, who are the student reps at KCL, we are part of the Pro Bono Society where we have an amicus chapter. So on top of being student reps, we raise funds. We're trying to uh, hold fundraisers. We hold panel sessions with amicus speakers. Occasionally, we hold moots. So the different ways you can get involved are not limited to that, but also participating in the biannual death penalty training, which accredits you to join a work placement in the U.S., as well as becoming a member of Amicus, which you can do through their website. So yeah, there's many, many ways. And Amicus is constantly looking for volunteers, so that's very important. Do you have any targets? And also, what are the commitments that you you really like work towards? Right. So uh, part of being a student representative for Amicus involves four main targets. The first is to grow the community, which basically means that we are uh, encouraging students to become members of Amicus. And then the second target would be to spread awareness. So encouraging students to come to the training, learn more about the death penalty, the U.S. justice system. We like to also host information sessions by Amicus staff, former Amicus interns, exonerees and lawyers associated with Amicus. At the biannual death penalty training, which I completely recommend every student interested in human rights and capital punishment get involved in, uh, students are able to hear from experts in capital punishment, so it's definitely an invaluable experience and it's part of our goals of spreading awareness. And then target three and four is funding the fight, so holding events, raising money. So there's many ways in which you can do this, but personally, me and the other student rep at KCL, we are planning on holding a bake sale next year. So even small things like that can help fundraise and contribute towards Amicus's cause. Thank you. And uh, I think that you touched upon the application process. Can you really try and give us some more information for students who are really involved and try and give us insight into how you apply to Amicus? Yeah, so I heard about Amicus last year actually through the Pro Bono Society. So most universities or a lot of universities in the UK have an Amicus club or an Amicus chapter. I became a student representative because I joined Amicus at KCL. And how I did this is I filled in a form answering some questions about my understanding of the death penalty, how I would fulfill the targets which I outlined previously and, you know, my interest in, in the area in general. You'll be notified of your application outcome for student representative, I think, at the end of August, by which time you can join and have an induction meeting and you will be sent, you know, more information about Amicus, so social media, 
kit and all that, which you can use to uh, promote Amicus at your university. So, yeah, the application process, uh, don't be daunted by it. It's definitely something that everyone should apply for um, if they're interested in the cause. I think it was a great decision on my part. Perfect. At the Pro Bono Society, we uh, decided this year to, again, fund two trainings for two students on the basis of an application. So can you go for it? And our listeners as well will be very interested in learning what is the biannual training at Amicus. Right. So last year I was a first year student at KCL. And honestly, one of the ways that I got very interested in Amicus is because I saw the training being advertised. Because of the pandemic, we were all, you know, at home, um, maybe worlds apart. I was in Singapore personally. So it was very interesting for me to have this opportunity and be involved during the pandemic. It's online, different country. And in Singapore, we actually also have the death penalty. So that was quite interesting for me to apply my open-minded, <laughs> cross-cultural um, experiences to this form of death penalty in the U.S. So I joined that, and I think in previous years, before the pandemic, we had students being sponsored to join the training by law firms. So unfortunately, since the pandemic, you know, funding is a bit short, so we haven't had the same opportunity to send as many people and students from KCL to the death penalty training. However, the Pro Bono Society has agreed to fund uh, two students in this academic year for the death penalty training. So we sent one in the fall training. And so there's another death penalty training in spring, I believe. And we will be sponsoring another student for that. The application process shouldn't be intimidating, so not to worry about that. It's a form where you answer questions about what you're interested in amicus is, what you know about capital punishment, and how you will benefit from knowing more. Just to highlight that you do not have to be a law student to get involved. I personally am a politics student, and I still got involved as a non-law student, and I have never had any regrets over it. In fact, it's definitely something I want to pursue going forward. So, yeah, I think it's definitely something you should apply for. And then if you are successful for the scholarship, we will ask you to write a blog post for our Amicus blog, as well as provide a testimonial on your experience. But even if you are not successful for the scholarship, we still encourage you to purchase a ticket for the death penalty training because it's definitely, as I said, an invaluable experience and definitely accredits you for a work placement as well. We just get sent get sent a name. I didn't realize that they yeah, have yeah. had to do all these things. Yeah, it's great. I think it's really good. In mm. previous times, we had law firms actually sponsor. I know you did. Yeah, they've yeah. they've not been but, the same you know, the last year. Yeah. yeah. So Anahita touched upon the role of student ambassadors in the work for Amicus. Could you possibly touch upon summer placements or student placements in general, and how can students get involved in in that perspective? Yes, so we have, as well as the student rep opportunities, um, and we love our student reps, they're very important. We also have UK and US placements. So it's been a little bit different in the last year because of COVID. Um, obviously, everything has gone remote. So we now have um, a mostly remote UK office. So all of our UK placements are fully remote with the option to potentially visit an office sort of once a month for a meeting, but essentially they're remote. For the UK volunteers, we ask for a commitment of three months, two days per week. 
Annoyingly, we do only open Monday to Friday. So it is Monday to Friday, two days per week. And that's 10 till 4 for our UK volunteers. We take applications all year round, but we have a cutoff point for a certain intake. So, for example, we've just had the deadline for our January to April 2022 volunteers. So any information on what dates you'll be applying for can be found on our website or on our social media as well. But essentially, you can apply any time of the year. It just depends on um, what, what time period we're recruiting for. So as of now, we'll be recruiting for volunteers to start from about April time. Uh, for the US placements, they have been remote, but we are going back to in-person US placements. Now, we have quite a backlog given that we had applications that um, were coming through last year and we had people who were supposed to go out last year and who couldn't. So if you were to apply for US placement now, it's likely we wouldn't be able to place you in person until the end of 2022 or 2023. But we are very happy to ha um, accept applications from anybody going forward. So... If you're interested, then do apply. The US placement, whether it's remote or in-person, is for three months minimum and it's full-time. So it's um, largely Monday to Friday, um, sort of 35, 40 hours a week. This obviously seems like quite a long time commitment, but anyone who was going out in-person would be working there full-time. So we echo that in the remote placement as well. And that's really the, the only way that our volunteers can be beneficial to the offices. These cases move quite quickly. And as we've said, there's so much information on them. They just need the um, you know reliable, consistent help. We often get a lot of questions on funding. Now, anyone who's interested can get in touch with Amicus and there's information on the website. But in terms of funding for the US placements in person, there are many different options. We offer bursaries and scholarships throughout the year. So it's worth checking the website for those. Um, Inns of Court are very helpful with um, supplying funding. So one of our um, placement volunteers has just got funding from the Inn of Court for his placement. There are also human rights charities like the HRLA, for example, um, who have bursaries for international placements. So there are many routes that you can get funding through um, if you're not able to fund the placement yourself. Thank you both for joining us today. And it was really interesting to hear your views on the work of Amicus and the work in general against the death penalty in the US. Join us the second semester for our fourth episode of the King's College London Pro Bono Podcast.